My Christians, to, to fix our eyes upon you, and Lord, uh, to stand strong for truth. And Lord, uh, we do need soldiers of Christ to arise, to put our armor on, and to, to run to the battle, because Father, our hope is in you. And Lord, uh, our world today is sorely lacking in hope. Um, Lord, uh, people don't realize what they're doing, what they're thinking, and, and what is even going on. And uh, Lord, we would just pray, Father, that we might show that our hope is in you, that we might stay upon that hope. And Lord, we might be able to lead others to that hope. And Father, we would just pray today that you might be glorified and that your promise would hold true, that your word would not turn void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Well, today we're going to continue looking at the necessity of the church and see another aspect of how the church is necessary. Uh, and so let's go ahead and let's open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, uh, we're going to look at this, how the church is necessary. And it's necessary not just in, in general in the idea of individually uh, for each of us to worship God properly and uh, to know God better and to know God uh, rightly. But the church is necessary also for our society as the church does uh, hold up truth and church does impact our society. And that's what we're going to be uh, going in and looking upon today is the necessity for the church, um, really for the entire world. Uh, but let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and it says this, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Uh, we see here that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time uh, on today. But before we do that, we do need to build uh, just a little bit here, a truth that is mentioned before in this passage, and that is why the Apostle Paul was writing. He was writing for their behavior or for their conduct. The Apostle Paul was writing this, and, and this is specifically to Timothy, uh, but Timothy at the time, he was at Ephesus, and so this was also uh, to be read to the church in Ephesus. And so we see here that he was writing to this church in Ephesus for their conduct. And, and recently here, uh, there was a, a famous apologist, Christian apologist, who passed away named Ravi Zacharias. And his ministry uh, was called Let My People Think. And I'm also uh, think of a, another famous apologist, um, Francis Schaeffer, whose ministry, or, or his famous phrase anyway, was, How then shall we live? And it takes both of these ideas, how shall we think, or let my people think, and how shall we live, our actions, for us to truly be right. It takes both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And this is exactly what the idea of what the Apostle Paul was getting at today is, is that uh, there is this idea that we ought to conduct ourselves, know how we ought to conduct ourselves, have those actions in our life. But also at the same time, of course, we have the truth, which of course we think of the truth as more of an intellectual or philosophical idea. And we're going to go into look at those ideas. But to truly be right, we must have right actions and we must also have right doctrine at the same time. It takes both of these things. If we simply only care about having, having right actions, well, the problem is, is that if we don't have the philosophical framework, if we don't have the, the, the true doctrinal framework, well, our actions will eventually deviate into a wrong area. But if we do not have the right actions, then what was the point of us having the right doctrine in the first place? If we're not willing to act upon our doctrine, upon what we write down as our doctrinal statement, it means absolutely nothing. It is nothing more than garbage that ought to be lit on fire if we are not willing to act upon what is right. God wants us to be right on paper, but also in our actions. And we see this idea where the Apostle Paul says, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of of God. It isn't enough to know the right answer or to know what is right. We have not obeyed until we put it into practice. Amen. 
We have not obeyed until we put it into practice. You know, so many times we think that we are obedient Christians because we have right doctrinal statements, but our life is our ultimate doctrinal statement. And if our life is not right, then we do not have the right doctrinal statement. We have the wrong one because we not truly believe what we're writing down on paper. Our actions prove what, our, what part of our doctrinal statement we actually believe. And this is a reality that we often try to ignore. You know, Christianity, and we can see this more so and more so as things heat up, as it seems as though the, the, the spirit of the Antichrist continues to march on in our nation and in our culture. We, we can see this even greater, that Christianity is often reduced to merely trivia. You know, it's just been reduced to trivia. We have so many people who, my goodness, if we played uh, a Bible trivia game, they would be able to beat it on the hardest level. But the question is, is can they live out their faith? That's the question. Can we live out our faith? Or is it just a game? Is it just a game that we come and we practice on Sunday so that we can get better, so that we can beat somebody in Bible trivia or so that we can light somebody up on Facebook or, 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 or whatever social media you're using or win an argument? The question is, can we live out our faith? Do we know how we ought to conduct ourselves? Actions are rarely called upon in any meaningful way for Christianity today. Many times it is just, oh, you, you know what to do, right? Know what to do. Well, the question is, is, does the rubber ever meet the road? And the Apostle Paul says, the reason I'm writing to you is not so that you can get this ginormous head that can barely fit through a doorway, but it is so that you know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. The reality of it is, is that we have plenty of instruction for our conduct in the word of God. And we must not ignore this instruction but we must apply it to our life. And we're going to see how this is vital, even to the idea of truth today, which we often think of, as I said, as more of a, a philosophical construct or just as, as doctrine. But the reality of it is, is that even truth itself demands and requires right action or we're not truly in the truth. But I want to get to the meat of what we're going to be looking at today, and that is that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And then we're going to be looking at how this applies, and we're going to apply it to the situation at hand. Because we could go and apply it to something that was 50 years ago, or something that was 75 years ago, or some theoretical situation. But when a perfect opportunity is laying right in front of us, in the situation that, are not, that the United States is in, especially as it considers with these riots and things like that, why would we not do that? Why would we not apply the truth of God's word to that and see what does this mean that the church is to be the pillar and ground of truth according to the situations and the circumstances that are at hand today? Why would we run from our responsibility. We're going to do that today, and we're going to look at that. But the church is the pillar and ground of truth. This is a necessity that I want us to focus in on today. And so far, we've looked at the general necessity of the church, that the church is necessary, that the called-out assembly is necessary. It wasn't something that God was pretending about or playing around about or saying, you know what, if you feel like it. No, it is something that is absolutely necessary. Last week, we looked at the importance of the church building, but today we're going to look at how the church is necessary for truth to be effective. You see, it says here that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It is the pillar and ground of the truth. But if I'm delayed, I write these things so you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and ground of the truth. These words, pillar and ground of the truth, and church, they're not in opposition to the truth. They're not in opposition to the church, and the church is not in opposition to the truth, but it is in apposition. It comes alongside the truth. It actually lifts the truth up, is what it does. The church holds up the truth. And we'll look a little bit more at the truth in general in just a moment. But what in the world does it mean that the church is to hold up the truth. You know, I think that we say this phrase, I don't think this is a totally uncommon phrase to the church today, that we are the pillar and ground of the truth. But the question is, is what in the world does that mean? I think that we say the phrase quite a bit, we are to hold up the truth. But what does that mean? What does it mean for us to actually hold 
up the truth. Frankly, it means that the church is to present the correct worldview to those around them. We have a responsibility to present the correct worldview to those who are around us. And and, and this requires interaction with them. This requires at times confrontation with them because worldviews confront one another. You cannot have a meaningful conversation with somebody of the opposite worldview and to not collide in some way. That's what worldviews do. We are viewing the world in such a different idea here than what that of the world is doing. You see the world, and we're going to look at some worldviews here in just a little bit about what is going on, about the situation in the United States, how there's this rioting going on, and of course the racist accusations and things like that. But the reality of it is, is that they are looking at the world through one specific set of lens. Well, as in we as Christians, we are supposed to be looking at the world through the lens of the word of God. That is what we're supposed to be doing. We're to be looking at the world in every situation through the principles that are given in the word of God. After all, the word of God is sufficient and it does contain everything that is necessary for life and godliness. I mean, do we believe? Do we believe that the word of God actually, and we say, the authority of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. And then we say, well, it contains everything that's necessary for life and godliness. It clearly states that. Oh, yeah, but, no, there is no but about it. Either the Bible's sufficient or it's not. Either it has the answers or it doesn't. And we believe it does have the answers because it does have the answers. And as Christians, what it means to be the pillar and ground of the truth, what the church to be the pillar and ground of the truth means is that we are to go and we are to present the correct worldview to the world around us while they have the wrong worldview. And that means it's going to be awkward at times. That means it's going to be difficult at times. That means it's going to be, uh, sometimes you'd, you'd rather be sitting in a dentist chair and have your teeth pulled because it is just that uncomfortable. But the reality of it is, is that we cannot have a meaningful conversation with somebody of a different worldview without confrontation because these worldviews collide. That's what they do. That doesn't mean our goal is to be a jerk, but what it does mean is that we need to expect confrontation. And if we've never had confrontation in our life, then we are not, as the called out assembly, being the pillar and ground of the truth. We have abandoned that responsibility if we've never had confrontation. That's the reality of it. There are ultimately two types of worldviews. The right one and the rest go under the category of wrong. That's the reality of it. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. The church is to hold up the proper worldview And this is the only functional worldview. You see, it's not just that it is the correct worldview. It's not just that it is the right worldview. But as we're seeing today, as the United States has been on fire, as places have been absolutely destroyed, and we're going to look, it is because they have a wrong worldview. It's because they have the wrong worldview. And because of this here, it's not functional. How long can a a civilization survive? Rioting. Can can we survive it for a year straight? I don't think so. Is is Minneapolis today functional? Absolutely not. They're not. They're spending their time, as many other cities in the United States do. I don't want to just point out Minneapolis. They're spending their time where these riots were happening, going and, and picking up garbage and picking up trash and picking up destruction and people weeping because their buildings were destroyed and their commerce is closed and their lives are in ruin. And it's probably going to happen again tonight. And they're going to have to do it again tomorrow. Fifteen days is the St. Louis riots that happened. I think we're in store for a lot longer of riots throughout the United States. And let me tell you, it's not functional. It doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? Why isn't it going to work for our society? Well, it's simple. They don't have the biblical worldview. They're not approaching what it says with the Bible. And the reality of it is, is that an unbiblical worldview, a wrong worldview, isn't functional. It always destroys itself. And why is this? Well, this worldview, the biblical worldview, is in agreement with natural law 
because it submits to one lawgiver, the one lawgiver, which is God. This worldview, the biblical worldview, is in agreement with God's moral law because it is from God. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the rioters are loving their neighbor as themselves? I don't think so. This worldview, the biblical worldview, is a lens that keeps the gospel at the focal point and presents the gospel as the ultimate cure for our ultimate problem, which is sin. That's what the biblical worldview does. And all other worldviews fail in these points. They do not submit to a moral lawgiver. They do not submit ultimately to natural law. Even those who would would go and say that they, they are natural philosophers, eventually their natural law breaks down because they reject the one lawgiver of natural law, which is God. And of course, a worldly worldview does not hold the gospel at the focal point. And this is the truth that the church must hold up, is the biblical worldview, the approach that we must look at our problems, that we must look at society, that we must look at people, that we must look at current events through the lens of the Bible. But let's take a look, uh, a little bit of truth today, because this is important to understand, and and it's silly that we would have to go and look at truth, but I think that it's absolutely necessary, it's absolutely vital that we look at truth today because we live in such a society that has gone into subjectivism and relativism, and we have said that there is no real truth. And as we've gone and we've said, you know what, just your own truth, your own truth is what it is. No, it's not your truth, it's not my truth, it's not somebody else's truth, it's that there is the truth. And because our society has so even, even to a degree uh, 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 gone in brainwashed Christians today, I think it's necessary that we need to go and remind ourselves what the Bible tells us about truth. And first of all, truth comes from God's character. Truth comes from God's character. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Truth comes out of the character of God. It is, it is within the character of God. And this is the foundation of what the church is to keep in mind while holding up the truth. While holding up the truth, it is not that we are simply uh, coming out here and, and, and abandoning our theology and just becoming, as I mentioned before, natural philosophers or, or something like that. But it is that we are upholding a part of the character of God. You know, God says, says that, that God is love in 1 John. We know that God says that, that he is, is holy. We know that God is omnipotent. We know that he is all these other things. We think of the moral character of God, that he is righteous, that he is holy, that he he is love. He is also truth, and we must not forget that. We must not forget that. As we go and we hold up these things theologically, sometimes we let down the truth because we don't want to agree with it as a theological premise. But it is a theological premise that comes from the character of God. Ultimately, truth comes from the character of God, and we can see this when Christ said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Also, we need to understand something here about truth, and this is something about the the word of God, and that is that God inspired the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us this, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I'll just quickly point out once again as we we started off by looking at the idea of how you ought to conduct yourself. When we think of the inspiration of the Bible, it's not just that it's profitable for doctrine, for teaching. But it is that this teaching is to have legs, that it is to have teeth, that it is to have the rubber meet the road. And that it is to instruct us in righteousness. This is the idea that we ought to know how to live in righteousness. If we expand it to the next verse, it tells us that the Bible is what equips us for every good work. The Bible is key to understanding the truth. This God-breathed, infallible, inerrant book is the foundation for the proclamation of truth. We cannot hold up the truth. We cannot proclaim the truth if we do not uphold the Bible. If we do not use this as our foundation, if we're not lifting up the word of God and proclaiming the word of God to others. And I know this sounds simple. But the reality of it is, is that go out and look at society today. This is exactly what we're not doing. How in the world can our society be in such destruction and yet have all these churches? If the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, well, it's because the church has abandoned its responsibility 
I'll never forget one time writing an article. It was uh, one of the first articles I wrote, and it was towards uh, the Cedar Valley. And the Cedar Valley, of course, we've ranked several years in a row. I think it's up to five, maybe six now. Uh, that we've ranked in the, the bottom four or bottom five of um, the least biblical-minded areas in the nation. San Francisco is more biblically-minded than the Cedar Valley and all, all this kind of stuff. And, and I posted that out there, and I had a few different people respond to me. And they said, how can this be? How can this be? Because the Cedar Valley has all these great churches in it. Well, can't be sitting here preaching a message on how the church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth, but uh, and, and ignore this fact. And, and this is exactly what I told this man here, or these couple, uh, those uh, two different people. I responded to him. I said, "Well, there's a simple solution for that, and that is that the Cedar Valley does not have very many good churches in it." And they got mad at me. Why? Because in their truth. And their truth, oh, these churches are so great. No, no, no. Look at the fruit. You'll know them by the fruit. That's a stick at our own eye as much as it is to everybody else. But it's the reality of it that we cannot fix a problem until we realize that there is a problem. But the Bible is key to understanding the truth. And we must realize this. In fact, in John 17, 17, it tells us that the Bible is truth. Jesus is praying here. It's his high priestly prayer just before he goes and is, is uh, crucified for us. And he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We are sanctified. We are built up. We are set apart through the word of God. We are made perfect through the word of God. As it sanctifies us. We must continue to apply the word of God. But one more portion about truth here before we, we, we move on to the next point, and that is that we're to be doers of the word of God. In James 1.22, it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Notice here that if we are only hearers of the word, if we do not apply the word of God, it says that we deceive our own selves. And what is deception? Well, deception is another word for a lie. What is a lie? It is the opposite of truth. We are lying to ourselves and therefore leaving the truth out of it if we do not apply the word of God. If we leave our conduct out of it, if we do not let the truth of God's word reach our actions, we become liars and we've abandoned the truth. It is impossible. Hear me now. It is impossible to be the pillar and ground of truth, to obey God in this area. If we leave our conduct out of it, we cannot merely be doctrinal statement warriors. We must actually apply the truth that is in our doctrinal statement. Our conduct matters. Truth comes from God's character. God inspired the Bible. The Bible is truth, and until we obey it, we're not living in it and not holding it up. We must obey God's truth. Truth has a great impact on the world and each person in the world. So I want us to look at the different institutions that God made and that our world it lives in within these, these certain constructs and uh, quickly look at the impacts of truth and why it is important because the reality of it is is that when people don't live in truth, and we're going to look at this here in just a moment, it, it brings destruction. It brings destruction, and, and we're going to look at some of that destruction, some of the specific lies, some of the specific wrong worldviews uh, that, that people are, are having and applying today. But we need to understand this here, that, that when it says that the, uh, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, that this actually has real-life implication, not just to the church, but to everyone else, because the truth has real-life implications to individuals, to families, into nations. Nations that don't believe in truth, families that don't believe in truth or don't live in truth or don't act upon truth, and individuals who don't live and act upon truth, well, they have problems. 
They have destruction in their life. And so as the church itself has the responsibility to lift this up, we see that the church will have an impact upon society because truth has an impact upon society. And it is the church's responsibility alone to lift up truth. Other people might hold it up. That's great. But it is specifically what God gave the church to do. Let's look at these different institutions here. We're going to look at the individual family and civil government or, or the nations. But it says here, or, or first of all here, the individual. And let's look at Genesis 1.27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And this is, uh, this is where mankind was created as an individual. And it is important to understand the individual. It's also important to understand um, that we live and uh, live in and function and act in communities or other institutions. See, there are two types of worldviews here specifically uh, as we go and we look at the individual and uh, in communities that absolutely start to tear apart, okay, one another. And there are two extremes. The Bible, it stays on the road here. The biblical worldview is on the road, but there's two different extremes. One is the extreme individualism, which uh, really happened within the French uh, Revolution and in the Enlightenment period. That idea of the extreme individual and that individuals ultimately are, are their ultimate God. And it leads to uh, this idea of, of anarchy and that we can go and, and do things our own ways and, and completely self-govern and not have anything else. Now, self-governance is absolutely important. We believe in self-governance. when We have self-governance, but there are other governing authorities, too, in life. We are not to go and be anarchists. And to go and to be out on our own and to, to, to look at that completely in society. But then there is this other worldview, too, that we have to be careful of. And, and this is really a worldview that is, is prominently being displayed, actually, uh, interestingly, by the, the people who are, who are spray-painting anarchy on different things or the anarchist sign. And that is this idea of, uh, ultimately it comes down to, to Marxism and communism and things like that. And that is the idea that we are only within a community. That there, are no, there is no such thing as private property. That there is no such thing uh, as, as, as true individualism. But you always find your place and in, in your value with the individual finds its value within the, the identity of the community. And we're going to look at that just a little bit uh, more in detail. But just bear with me here. But it is just this idea that we are completely and only a community and that there are no true individuals. That's another bad worldview. The reality of it is, and what the Bible teaches, is that we have communities that are made up of individuals and we keep our individuality while we live within communities. But we think about this idea here as to, to, to what this means. What it means as an individual, I, I might do something a little bit different than within a family construct and within uh, a, a, a different, uh, another different construct. You know, as, a, as an individual here, I can tell you one thing. I always squeeze the toothpaste from the middle of the, the toothpaste tube. Always. And living in a family unit, I have my own tube of toothpaste because Sarah doesn't like that. No. Uh, and, and so I, I shouldn't uh, do that, right? I should squeeze from the bottom of the toothpaste or, or however you look at that. I'm not sure. But we, you know, that's, that's kind of a silly way, but we do act differently here uh, individually of certain things. We, we're, we're going to be okay with it. Then we would not be okay with certain things within a family construct and then with also in a societal construct also. There, there are tightening and different rules and different things like that as we go and we, we uh, engage into these communities and as we live within these communities but as the individual here, it is, it is instituted. And these institutions are bad in and of themselves. In fact, they are good because God made them that way. But we must stay within God's design for these institutions or these constructs. Uh, and in the truth, we must stay in God's design in the truth. But I repeat myself when I say that because God's design is the truth. And if they do not stay within God's design or the truth, they fall apart and they can be used by Satan to harm the individual. That's the problem. When a family is not within God's design, when a family is not within the truth that God has laid forth, well, individuals end up being harmed. When a nation is not within God's design, when a nation is not within the truth, and they're not looking at that, individuals end up being harmed. And there is problems that we see there. There are problems 
that arise. Now, if the individual does not have the truth, ultimately, where does that lead? And the ultimate truth, the individual doesn't have the truth and the ultimate truth, where does it lead? Well, it ultimately leads the individual to hell. And that is the, the biggest thing that we must remember. Once again, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You see, we've, we've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of our sin is death. And so God loved us so much. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to die upon the cross for us. He didn't stay dead because Jesus isn't merely a man. He is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And he rose again, conquering and defeated death and provided a way for salvation to us. And if we do not accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will end up in hell. But if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will spend an eternity in heaven. And that is the ultimate truth. And if the individual doesn't have that truth or ignores that truth, what happens? Well, it's destruction of the individual. But let's look at the family institution here. The, the family institution, the family was, was made and instituted in the Garden of Eden as husband and wife. And then shortly after uh, the fall, Adam and Eve um, had a child. And so then you had a parent-child relationship there. And that is the family is that it is the husband of wife and then you have the parent-child. There it is, these, these two different uh, entities within the same construct. But without the truth, there's a breakdown of the family, and then, of course, the individual, once again, is damaged and hurt. Let me just give you some statistics here. A fatherless home. 63% of youth suicides happen within fatherless homes. 70% of juvenile detention rate uh, comes, or, or those who are, are detained, um, there is, is within fatherless homes. 75% of adolescents in, with substance abuse, within substance abuse centers are, they come from, fatherless homes. That's that idea of if you don't have a father and in that. Uh, but let's look at this idea of cohabitation because that's something that has become wildly popular in our culture. Well, women face a significantly higher rate of intimate partner violence than married women, those who cohabitate. Cohabitating... As opposed to being married, uh, women are 2.1 times more likely to have head, face, and neck injuries associated with domestic violence. They're two times more likely to be beaten than a married woman would be. Now, this doesn't mean that, that there aren't those who, who deny truth that have an outward appearance of a, of a biblical construct of a family. That's, that's obvious. That does happen. Abuse does happen. There is sin, even within people who have a, a seemingly biblical, uh, biblical view there. That's, that's obvious, too. We, we realize that. But the statistics are what the statistics are. You are far less likely to be abused and as a child to have substance abuse and to have all these other problems in life if your family construct is as God designed. Here we think about uh, this and the simple truth is that where a family is lacking, there's great destruction of the individual. And we, we think about this here as people go and they, they like to, to virtue signal and to, to go in to say that they're, they're for the, the abuse victims and, and things like that. And then they're against morality. The reality of it is, is that they're just plumb stupid. They deny the facts. They want to live in a fantasy land. You can't be against abuse and against morality at the same time. In any consistent way. That's the reality of it. But where have we been upholding that truth? Have we warned people the dangers, the real danger in not obeying God's word? It's not simply that, oh, you won't get a crown in heaven. Well, that's probably true. And the reality of it is, is that a lot of the people that we're talking about in the United States, they won't go to heaven. But it's not simply that, you know, I feel like the church for so long has simply said, oh, you know, we have to obey God because if you don't obey God, you won't get a crown in heaven. Well, that's true. You'll lose heavenly rewards. 
But the also reality of it is, is that when you, it, when you live in this world, and we all live in this world, right? We must live by the rules of the one who made this world. And when we don't live within those rules, things break down and we have destruction in our life because this is what people heard. This is what generations, the last two generations have heard. If you don't obey God, you, you won't get rewards in heaven. And so this is what they hear when they hear that. So you're telling me I can still go to heaven and live how I want to on this earth and everything is going to be fine and wonderful and dandy? I can have my cake and eat it too? Wow! Because who cares if I live like the devil on this earth and still get to heaven? Well, who cares if I don't have a crown? I don't like hats anyway. That's what people hear. They don't hear. You're two times more likely to have your face beat in because that man doesn't really love you. He just wanted to, to use and abuse your body. They don't hear. If you don't want to try to work it out with your spouse here, your child has a 70% higher chance of committing suicide because the father's not. They don't hear those truths. Because we didn't tell it to them. We didn't tell them that God's design is what works. God designed the family so it is logical that it would work best within his design. This is also true with the truth being presented to the family. We want the true truth, the ultimate truth being presented to the family. We want the spiritual truth to be presented to the family because we know that a Christian family is a much higher chance of leading to Christian children. We want the moral truth to be within the family because we know that a moral family generally produces moral children. We want... Physical truth to be in the family because, well, that's, that's just obvious. You, you want real truth. But let's look at the nation. Let's look at the nation or civil government, the institution of civil government. Truth is vital here also. We know that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to how many people? Any. Even a nation as great as the United States. And we're going to look at this further detail in just a moment, but let me touch on it here in just, just a, a moment with uh, the, the topic of what's been happening in our nation this week. The man that was killed in Minnesota, George Floyd. First, we need to understand something. The death was a tragedy. It, it, by all accounts, from what I can tell, was an absolute murder. And the men who killed him should be held accountable. We need to realize that that's true. Our nation also... When this first happened, they, they saw it. The initial response was that that of what, what anybody initially has when they, they see an injustice and they feel an injustice against them is that they want objective justice to come, real, true justice to come of these things. And, and there should be real, true justice. But the response was protesting that quickly became rioting and looting and burning things and all kinds of, uh, of other murders, too. This is not objective justice that has been the response. The response has been injustice to injustice. And as simple as it is, we've all known this since kindergarten, maybe before, two wrongs do not make a right. The only thing that makes a right is righteousness. In the absence of truth, we have seen the loss of life, a life, and then more to follow that. We've seen the destruction of property, we have seen injuries, we have seen flames, we have seen chaos, we have seen cities that will take probably years to truly recover, if ever. And this is what happens when truth is absent from this arena of civil government. When the truth hasn't been held up. When a society, a nation hasn't heard the truth. They respond with a lie, to a lie, 
and it just makes more destruction. The last institution that we're going to be looking at here really quick, and then we'll, we'll get into the truth of racism here. Or looking at racism, I should say, not the truth of it. Is the church. The church is the other institution that God made, and the church is the lone institution that is told by God to be the pillar and ground of the truth. All of these other institutions are dependent on the truth to function properly and to not have destruction. This means that the church is necessary for families, nations, and individuals to properly function in this world. If the church isn't doing its job, individuals will not function properly. Families will not function properly. And ultimately, nations will not function properly. When the church does its job, it gives these institutions, the individual, the family, and the, and the nations an opportunity to submit to God's word and to God's design. The issue we face is that the church has widely abandoned the truth in our culture. Instead of holding it up by realizing that the Bible holds all that pertains to life and godliness, we let others dictate what truth is to us. We abandon areas of, this, areas of life and we hide behind the mantra that we ought to just love God and love our neighbor. Now understand something, we should love God. Understand something, we should love our neighbor. But real love cannot happen absent of truth. A church cannot love God or its neighbor if it is abandoning its responsibility to hold up the truth. There are no bounds for love to act within without truth. It's like trying to carry a gallon of water with no container. You can't do it. That's what it's like to try to love and leave the truth out of the matter. It just doesn't work. But let's look at racism today because I think this is important in the, the, the topic or the narrative that was handed to us. First of all, we need to understand racism, as we've said, through a biblical worldview. So let's go back to Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27 gives us the foundation, the simple foundation, to view racism, to understand racism. And it says in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All of man was created by God. That is our foundation biblically to look at. And this is important to understand when it comes to the topic of racism. Because it is fundamentally against racism to view man as created being. Racism makes sense through the lens of evolution. Understand that when... When churches, when pastors and churches start proclaiming and holding up this idea of racism and start bemoaning racism, and, and understand something here, racism is wrong, it's a sin, we're going to look at that. But when they start accepting it as a true narrative, as a true cultural phenomena, or as they like to say, systemic racism, here's the reality of it. They've abandoned the biblical worldview because instead of going and saying, look, the answer is, is that God created man, and so therefore there is only one race, and that is the human race. That is what the Bible teaches. They are subjecting themselves, subjecting their arguments, subjecting the narrative, subjecting the propaganda, might I say, to what? An evolutionary worldview. That's what they're doing when they start proclaiming systemic racism. All of man was created by God. The different physical traits would indicate, under the, the worldview of evolution, it would indicate that someone is better, or simply put, the survival of the fittest, someone is more fit, so therefore racism makes sense in an evolutionary worldview. But through creation, we can see that there is one race, and that is the human race. We are made in the image of God. That's also important while viewing this idea of racism. This is where our value comes from. Each individual is valuable because they were created in God's own image. Every person, no matter what they look like, has inherent and high value because of the image of God. Therefore, the conclusion is to reject the devaluing of innocent life. We reject that. And we do not devalue someone else or value something else or a trait of somebody as higher 
than something else. The biblical worldview rejects race supremacy. I think this is important for us to understand. And this is probably a well-duh, but I think it should be said in the narrative of our nation. The classic view of racism is wrong. It is sick and it is a sin. But the biblical worldview also rejects what is called critical race theory. And we'll have a quick crash course on critical race theory because it sounds like a super technical term, but it's actually very easy to understand. And it's easy to see, especially with what is going on right now across our nation. It's critical race theory in action is what it is. There are four points to critical race theory I want to point out. The first one is is that uh, critical race theory affirms that human relationships should be fundamentally understood in terms of power dynamics, which differentiates groups into the oppressors and the oppressed. If you've heard the chanting at the riots, you've seen that. The second thing that critical race theory affirms is that our identity as individuals is inseparable from our group identity. Think about that for just a moment. And think about the images that you've seen and the things that you've seen from the rioting and protesting. They have a unity around what? A skin color. And it's not just a unity about an idea that people should be treated with value. It's an idea that they are identifying as that one person. The third thing that critical race theory affirms is that all oppressed groups find their fundamental unity in their common experience of oppression. We're all oppressed because somebody was oppressed. Therefore, we can go and run and loot and riot. That's what critical race theory says. The fourth thing that critical race theory affirms is that the fundamental human project is liberation from all forms of oppression. Consequently, the fundamental virtue is standing in solidarity against the oppressor because there was four cops who acted wickedly and evilly All cops are evil. That's what critical race theory says. That's what you're seeing today. Because I I ask this question. What what does the police force in Des Moines, Iowa have to do with the police force in Minneapolis? What about Atlanta? What about New York? I think that we should look at cops on an individual basis hold them accountable for their individual crimes. And we should give recognition and honor to those who act courageously for their individual accomplishments and courage. This is what we jump to in our nation instead of holding the truth and holding those four cops accountable is critical race theory. That's what we jump to. Instead of holding them accountable for their crimes, we have riots and raids because we have viewed tragedy through the lens of critical race theory instead of through the Bible. Simply put, critical race theory is, in fact, racist. Many churches, though, today, we need to understand this, are espousing critical race theory instead of holding up the truth of biblical anthropology, the study of man. They have let some psychobabble dictate Truth to them instead of holding up the truth. Where are the mighty men who will unapologetically hold up the truth in today's culture? We must not abandon our calling as a church to hold up the truth or we will see the world crumble further. Now, as I mentioned here, it's about conduct. Truth has a lot to do with conduct. We must have the right conduct. And I want us to go to one more passage of scripture here today. And this is a little bit of a different one, but I think that what is at hand today is reconciliation. 
This is the teaching that, the theological teaching that people want to talk about is reconciliation. So let's look at biblical reconciliation. Let's go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, because the conduct that we find here is absolutely true, and it is conduct that we ought to apply to our life. But we must understand, we must understand the true idea here is what's presented. In Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 here, we find the story of Zacchaeus. And I'm going to go ahead and read this quickly. The story of Zacchaeus, and we're going to pull out just a couple of truths. It won't take very long as we, we conclude here. Short, we'll conclude here shortly. But it says, in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see uh, who Jesus was, but he could not because the crowd, for he was short of stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. And so he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. But when they saw it, the crowds. They all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to this Lord, Look, Lord, I gave half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Some quick points here on reconciliation. First of all, we notice that Zacchaeus did two things. One, he gave half of his goods to the poor. And the second thing is, is that he repaid uh, those whom he, he, uh, he cheated fourfold. And understand here, only one of these things is reconciliation. Giving half of his goods to the poor is not reconciliation. What that is, that is called Christian charity. Christian charity. And understand something, as Christians, we should all be charitable. We should all be given. We should all look to seek and to help others in our life. We should bless those with the blessings that God has given us, knowing that it is from the hand of God. But that's not reconciliation. He didn't do that because he had wronged them. He did that because he had a heart of love for individuals. The reconciliation is seen in this. He repaid those who he had personally wronged fourfold. This is biblical reconciliation. He repaid those whom he had personally wronged. He didn't go and say, if you had been wronged, I will give you four times that from what a different tax collector wronged you. He didn't say that I give four times to those who anybody who had ever been wronged or to whose ancestor had been wronged. He said, to those whom I have wronged, I will repay. I will make it right on an individual basis. Because that is reconciliation. Reconciliation is done on an individual basis. Zacchaeus was not required to pay back all of those who had ever been stolen from. This is a truth that we need to apply to our lives when we wrong someone. We do need to go and to pay them back. We do need to go into reconcile, but it is on an individual basis. It is that we should be individually held accountable for our sin. This is a truth also that needs to be applied to racism and kept in the bounds of the truth. It's individual reconciliation. As I mentioned before, there's rioting happening across our nation. What does rioting in Los Angeles have to do with a man who was murdered in Minneapolis? Absolutely nothing. Except they've applied a critical race theorist worldview, a view of critical theory to the world, <clears throat> instead of applying the Bible. Last night, watched quite a bit of the footage of, of the protests rioting in Des Moines. 
And there was, I assume he was an imam, but it was at least a, a Muslim man who was out and, and it seemed to be a leader, somebody who'd been through quite a this, uh, these kind of um, protests to say before. Once you start throwing rocks at windows, it's not a protest. But he was out there and of course encouraging people to be out there and protesting and things like that. But once again, I asked the question, what does the police force in Des Moines, Iowa, have to do with the police force in Minneapolis. Absolutely nothing. If they should have wanted to protest, they should have you know, driven a few hours up to Minneapolis. But they wanted to create chaos. This Muslim man clearly didn't have a biblical worldview, but he has a critical worldview. And so he's out there. And, and granted, he, he was a nice guy saying, oh, parents, come get your children. You know, it could get ugly. Come get your children. And, and, and oh, we don't want violence. And oh, we don't want these things. But the reality of it is, is that they, they were demanding reconciliation from somebody who had not wronged them. He didn't have a biblical worldview. He might have had a nicer worldview than what some other people had, but it still led to destruction. And he was an enabler of that destruction of those broken windows and of those people who, who, who cried tears with tear gas in their eyes. Oh, but he comes out the hero because he's telling parents to come get their children, because he's telling people to be peaceable. No, how about you teach the truth? These people haven't been wronged. And the people they're protesting haven't done wrong. They're demanding reconciliation. And they haven't been wronged. And they're demanding reconciliation from someone who hasn't wronged them because they have a broken biblical or broken worldview. They do not have a biblical worldview. They didn't read the story of Zacchaeus. They didn't apply the story of Zacchaeus. But this passage leads off with the greatest truth, and that is it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, I want us to first of all understand Zacchaeus was saved because he believed on Jesus by grace through faith. It wasn't because he gave his stuff away. He had fruit that was evidence of his salvation, but that fruit wasn't why he was saved. It was just the evidence. Once the fruit was evident, it was made widely known that he was saved. And this should be true in our life also. Our faith should have evidence Remember where we started. We started with the fact that Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus about their conduct. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Accepted truth impacts our conduct. And that is how we must uphold the truth and hold the truth up as a church and as individuals, as part of the called out assembly by living the truth out and proclaiming it. But Jesus concluded by proclaiming the greatest truth. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And this is the greatest truth that we must live out and the greatest truth that we must proclaim to others that Jesus has come to save them. Proclaim that truth. And today I want to challenge you by just asking you this question. How are you going to uphold the truth this week? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity given us to come and to look into your word. What a privilege it is. And Father, we weep and we're hurt. We're saddened by the broken worldviews, by the lack of truth in our nation. And Father, for what part that we have had in that as a church, we repent of. If we have not upheld the truth adequately, if we have abandoned our responsibility to be the pillar and ground of truth, we repent of that. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunities to proclaim the truth to our neighbors, to our friends, to our colleagues. But Father, I pray that you might also give us the opportunity to live out the truth 
and to hold the truth dear to our life. Because, Father, without the truth, our nation will not survive. Without the truth, families will continue to be in ruin. And without the truth, individuals will go to hell. Father, we pray that that would not be the case. The Lord, that individuals might be saved by accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. That families might be functional by living in accordance with your word. And that our nation might thrive by upholding righteousness. Father, we pray that this might be to your will, not ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.